Hey, Rockheads, it's time again for NDC, an incredible developer conference held annually in Oslo, Norway. Richard and I will both be there, of course, but check out this all-star lineup. Troy Hunt, Rob Eisenberg, Scott Allen, Oren Eni, Michelle Bustamante, Damian Edwards, Brock Allen, Dominic Beyer, and many more. Register before March 11th at ndc-oslo.com and save up to $350. That's 3,000 kroner for you Norwegians. NDC, we'll see you there. .NET Rocks, episode 1261, with guest Gary Short. Recorded Thursday, January 21st, 2016. Aberdeen, it's .NET Rock! So what happens when you give 40,000 Scots a whiskey? <laughs> wow. I, I gotta say, uh, you can count on a group of Scots to make some noise. Oh, yeah! <laughs> we love Scotland. We had a great time here in Scotland. This is the last one. Uh, boy, you have a wonderful country here. And uh, some really, really smart people. We've met a lot of you, talked to you in the pubs and afterwards, and I hope you're going to come out and join us later. Gary Short is here. We're going to be talking to him about machine learning, uh, and uh, that's going to be great. So, But before we do that, we have this little thing that we do at the beginning of the show. Mm -hmm. Right, Richard? Mm-hmm. Called? Better No Framework. Better No Framework. Roll the crazy music. <laughs> All right, buddy, what do you got? Uh, well, I went looking for some stuff that was trending, and there's a web server and framework for Node.js out there called Nodal.js. Nodal? Nodal.js.com. This guy was sort of taking the Rails approach to... Uh, you know, to, to Node. Oh, interesting. Yeah, so I'm reading here. Nodal was born out of a need to address consistency issues in Node.js web server development caused by the explosive growth of the ecosystem. JavaScript is the fastest growing language in terms of adoption the developing community has ever seen. It's highly accessible, flexible, and robust. But it turns out, you know, just raw uh, Node.js, you know, you, you have to build up a lot of infrastructure. Sure. So there's models, templates... Uh, now, ORM, schedulers, initializers, an authorizer, controllers, routing, migrations, tasks, middleware, all sorts of stuff in, in uh, Nodal.js. And they've got a great introductory video there on YouTube that just shows you how to get up and running pretty fast. That's so, really neat. Yeah, it's a great way to get your feet wet, if nothing else. And, and if you like it and continue to use it, great. It's Even fun. better. And I believe it's free. So check it out, nodaljs.com. And if it's not free, I'm going to hear about it. Yeah, but, I but don't you see, will. <laughs> I don't see pricing anywhere. No. Yeah. Uh, who's talking to us, my friend? Grabbed a comment off of show 1086, the one we did on statistical genomics, which certainly addressed all kinds of data technology with F-sharp, and that was Evelina Gabasova, who we just saw at the NDC conference. Yes, we did. Yeah. And this comment comes from, now see if you remember this name, Alex Rustel. 
Oh, wait, did we meet him on a road trip? Well, no, we didn't. He invited us to the Goddard Space Facility. Oh, that, Alex. That, Alex. Hi, Alex. And here's this awesome comment. This is from about a year ago, but listen to this. You'll enjoy it. Wow, what a fantastic episode. The discussion of the differences in the realm of scientific computing and business application development really resonated with my own experiences working as a developer on a high-energy astrophysics project. Hmm. And he doesn't say it here, but I'll tell you right now, guy works for NASA. He's like smart and stuff. It's scary. I may be the victim of confirmation bias here because three key points really hit home. First, that uncertainty governs so much of our output that it's often incredibly difficult to debug subtle errors. Second, that scientists generally write awful programs. We really shouldn't expect them to write better code, given that it's not their area of expertise, though it does lead to my final point, which is that third, that cooperation is so incredibly important in these types of intellectual exercises. Scientists, statisticians, and engineers, and yes, man, managers too, need to work together to produce something truly amazing. Our cultural myth that great ideas are produced by individual geniuses is so pervasive that we often downplay the effects of cooperation and teamwork on producing great works. So true. Genius is an event not an attribute. Hmm. It is something that happens to you, often through education, hard work, and exposure to the right set of new ideas rather than something you are. Yep. I know you already have a mug, Alex, but we have to send you another one. What an awesome comment. Yeah, fantastic. And just an absolute truth. And when we talk about the field of data analytics and so forth, I mean, what is a better manifestation of an event of genius Mm -hmm. than finding something new in data? Yeah. So thank you, Alex. A .NET Rocks mug is on its way to you. And if you'd like a .NET Rocks mug, write a comment on the website at .NET Rocks.com or via any of our social media. We post every show to Google Plus and Facebook. And if you comment there and we read it on the show, we'll send you a mug. And you can follow us on Twitter. He's at Rich Campbell. I'm at Carl Franklin. And send us tweets. We pour them over ice cream. So that brings me to Gary Short. Uh, He's our guest today. Gary is a data solution architect at Microsoft based in Dundee, UK. He has a deep understanding of the full Hadoop and HD Insight environment, as well as interest in predictive analytics, social network analysis, and computational linguistics machine vision. Gary can be found on Twitter at Gary Short and on Facebook at the other Gary Short. Welcome, Gary Short. you, Gary Short, do a short talk on how to give short talks? It was very good. It was very short. Yeah, but apart short. from that, it was really good. Because yeah. yeah. it would really be inappropriate if it had been a long talk. Exactly. People would have left halfway yeah. through going, no, that's it. That's that, a this is now of, a long talk now. I cannot abide this much hypocrisy. <laughs> yeah. I must go. Dude, what have you done to your career? <laughs> you joined Microsoft. My goodness. I What's did. What's your poor guy? By surprise. Yeah. I joined by surprise. Where's your implant? Yeah. How's it feel? Are they itchy? Uh, I haven't got it yet. No, um, February. Oh. I'm I'm off to Seattle for oh, um, oh, plantation. Okay. It's like a tech ready or something. Um, it's uh, Azure Bootcamp. Oh, there you go. And then tech, tech ready is right after it. Are you oh, teaching cool. the Azure Bootcamp? I mean, you know, I am not. No, I am attending. It's great. I can just turn up and learn stuff instead yeah. of actually having to work for a living. <laughs> yeah. What do you think about Azure these days? It's good. pays pays the bills. pays my mortgage. Yeah, sure. So yes. it's awesome. <laughs> but in, I mean, in, in every way, in terms of the way they they just keep bringing out new stuff. I mean, it's it's pretty amazing, isn't it? 
it it is really amazing. I mean, the the fact that the Azure infrastructure um, keeps growing, mm. uh, and the fact that what I like about it particularly is the fact that it all just works very nicely together. Mm-hmm. Right. It's not it's not like other cloud providers maybe where somebody goes, this is a really great idea, and we build this stuff and we release it, and then another group goes, well, this is a really cool idea as well, and you release it, and you try to make those two things work together, and suddenly so you realize much. you need six other things to go in between them and to make know, that thing work. His- Historically, it's very un-Microsoft-like that all their software works together on one platform. Sure. Isn't it? And the other thing that I find, the other thing that I find, um, un-Microsoft-like or in the Microsoft in the past is that when stuff comes out into Azure, it comes out um, in preview. So it'll be in one data center, usually in the US, for a bunch of months. And customers will say, this is really cool. We want to use that. You know, when's it going to ship? And you go, I don't know, but let me find out for you. Right. You know, and, and you send an email to the PM on that team and say, when's this going to ship to general availability? And he goes, when it's ready. Yeah. <laughs> you know, not, not March the 1st, whether it's working or not, and we'll let the customers find the bugs. It's, well, we're not telling you. There's no date. It'll yeah, ship we, when it's ready. We don't know. Yeah. It's got to get through a certain threshold. Correct. How, when how, we're happy with it. How much of that uniformity and just single-mindedness of the software do you think you could attribute to Scott Guthrie directly? I think you can see a lot in, um, you can see a lot of that in Scott Gurfty, I think. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you, when you look back on his career and the places that, that have been, the in, you can see that DNA really right. um, yeah, that baked into there. Azure. Absolutely. It's been a lot of years now. So you said it was a surprise. How did you end up working for Microsoft? So <laughs> a, f- a friend of mine said, um, you should check out this, this um, job description. And I read this job description. I thought that sounds that sounds really cool. Because, and this was the the, the data. The, yeah, yeah, the, the, the data, data solution. Role. Yeah, the data solution. Is, I know this is work you've been doing for a while. Sure. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I've been doing that space on my on my own, running my own sort of um, big data and cloud consultancy sure. on my own. A friend of mine says, "Hey, check out this." Um, he worked for Microsoft. He says, "Check out this job description." It didn't say Microsoft anywhere on it, right? He was uh, just showing you this. No, no, no. I knew it was a Microsoft thing. Okay. And I said, "Oh, that's that's really cool." But that's what I'm doing right now. Yeah. So you're already why doing why would I want to go do it for Microsoft for? Probably less money than I can make sure. running my own business, and and he'd obviously thought about this. You know, this was this was not an <laughs> this was not, an this was not an accidental conversation because straight as a flash he came back and he said, because people will hire you, well, people will hire Microsoft to do really cool projects that they wouldn't hire you to do on your own. Huh. And I was like, that is a very good point. That's fair. Yeah, that's, yeah, fair. that's a very good point. So um, I want to just give you. a the freedom to just tell us something about machine learning and predictive analytics that people don't understand or that uh, they get wrong when thinking about it. Wow. So what is the most common misconception? Yeah. So from a business perspective, so from running my own business, Mm -hmm. the most common misconception is that you can make data answer the question that you want answered. <laughs> yeah. And the, I've had a number of clients who have said, I want the answer to this question. And I go, well, okay, I will, I will conduct, um, a scientific predictive analytics, right. machine learning review of the data that you've got, but there's no guarantees. Right. And you maybe work a week on it and come back and say, nope, that question cannot be answered with the data that you have got. Yeah. Right. Here's what you either, here's, here is the questions that we could go ahead and answer for you, mm-hmm. or here is the data that you should capture in order to answer the question that you have. 
But as of this hot second, with that data, you cannot answer this question. Yeah. Well, they throw their toys out of the pram when you do that. Yeah. <laughs> the number of clients who I have said, well, wait, 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 wait. <laughs> they throw their toys out of the pram. Yes. I love that. <laughs> you, could, you, you imagine, you know, oh, yeah. a, a oh, screaming no. baby. Oh, yeah. Woof, We've paid you, yeah. you know, weeks of, stir, no, you know, Well, whatever. that's the problem. The number of clients yeah. who have gone, well, actually, this invoice that you've sent us, <clears throat> yeah. we don't seem to have anything for that work. Yeah, right. No you do, yeah, right. you just don't appreciate what it is I've given you because right. it wasn't what you thought you were going to get. Right. I mean, I could, I could answer that question for you. you know, It'll be completely wrong. But you've basically summed up the consultant's dilemma, right? Managing sure. expectations. Yeah. You know, what are you going to get at the end of this? You have to be very clear with the possibilities. Sure. Absolutely. Yeah. But that is the, that's the greatest misconception is, you know, people say, well, we've got big data now. Both in all the descriptions that, that mm. of big data, not just in terms of the, the volume. Yeah, the size. But we have, we have all of this big data now and we have, to all intents and purposes, infinite compute power. Mm -hmm. Sure. What do you mean you can't answer this question? Right. And I go, well, because you have not captured the data that I would require to answer that question. I kind of think that at least some people are excited about the questions you can answer. It's like oh, these absolutely. are questions they didn't even know they wanted to know. Sure, I mean, I get a lot of um, I get a lot of clients um, who just come to me and say, "Look, we're going to hire you. We want to hire you for a month. We want to buy a month of your time. We have been in business now for twenty five years, and we have captured all of the data right. that we've ever had mm. of all of our customers and everything that they've ever done. We feel." that there must be a way to earn money from this data. There must be a way to monetize that data. Right. Even if it's not in terms of actually selling the data and getting money, you know, in terms of new yeah. products or right. better, Tell faster ways. Know. Yeah, faster ways to bring products to market and, and things like that. But we have no clue. Mm -hmm. You know, we want you to come in for a couple of weeks and just explore the data and tell us the kind of things that we can gain from this data. Now that sounds like a good hire, right? An that exploratory is, hire. Sure. Th and that is fun. I mm -hmm. can lose days <laughs> in data sets and stuff like that sure you know um that's the, it's the kind of thing where you're working away and you go and your wife says you know are you coming down for dinner and you right. go dinner what happened to lunch <laughs> I mean, you know, and she says well I that's cold a shower yet. yeah that's that's already cold yeah you know, I'm, just <laughs> I'm making the next one now yeah. where have you been yeah uh are, we, are there sort of standard kind of kpis are, are businesses all the same like how much diversity do you really see Oh, that's a great question. Are businesses really all the same as a lot of diversity? Um, there is. Um, so, for example, if you are dealing with um, two clients, for example, one um, sells commodities mm -hmm. um, on a stock exchange, and the other one actually records horse racing results. Right. Wow. Um, Pretty and different, so, different businesses. Sure. Yeah. I mean, basically, so so for the company, so for the company that um, do the horse racing results, if you ever watch um, Channel Four racing or stuff like that, and you see the stats about the jockeys and the stats about the horses and the winnings and all those, it's come from this company. Mm -hmm. Okay. Now, the kind of information and the kind of things that they're looking to do with their data, completely different from a company who are maybe doing seven or eight hundred trades per second right uh, and the kind of things that, that they want to do so although there is a large diversity in the data that's captured and what each company wants to do with that data the process is pretty much the same mm -hmm. um it, it's it's cookie cutter in as much as um you're going to follow the same process every time right you can argue that you know science is all like that you follow the scientific method every sure. time but you know 
basic chemistry is completely different from theoretical physics, right. but you follow the scientific um, method every time. It's the same for big data in companies. For sure. Now, before you joined Microsoft and you were doing this work, were you Azure-centric? Um, no, really. Um, I was happy to work on whatever platform the customer had. Right. If they didn't have one, my preference would be for Azure for the okay. conversation we had at, at the start. Yeah. That would be my preference. But um, data science is, is data science. It's generally um, language agnostic and it's generally platform agnostic. Mm -hmm. Having said that, there are programming languages and platforms which make it easier to do the job. Sure. Yeah. But you can pretty much do the job anywhere, including with properly sampled data on your laptop. Mm. Yeah, yeah. It's just a question of the tooling and you know how you exactly. it. You can do yep. all this in SQL if you have to. It's just hard. Sure. I mean, I, I dare say you could write you could write store procedures to do linear regression in in SQL yeah. and um, that is and not what SVMs. Was made it's for. not what T-SQL is made for. <laughs> um, I'm sure there are people out there who go, "Yes, you could do that." In the same way as you could take your eye out with a rusty spoon, but yeah. if it's got to come out, I would suggest hospital anesthetic, clean environment, that kind yeah, of yeah. thing. You know. See, now you're just being high maintenance. I know. I'm, so I'm like I'm a diva. A yeah. functional yeah. language, maybe, perhaps, or a statistical language like R could help you. Sure, statistical statistical languages like R really help you, and they hinder you um, to a certain extent as well. So they help you in as much as it's a statistical language. Yeah. It's what it's designed for. It, it's what it does out of the box. The packages that come with it are really awesome. On the downside, as somebody who has the best part 25 years industry experience in programming, as a programmer, R is a terrible language. Yeah, I heard that. <laughs> it, is, it is a language designed and written by statisticians and not by language designers. We call those write-only languages. <laughs> yes, because if you say, can you maintain, if somebody ever asks you, can you maintain this R package, the answer is always no. Yeah. Right. You can write a new one for I will them. Write, I will write a new one faster than I can understand what the hell that was, yeah. what you just did. And so when we talk about R, it seems like there's two distinctly different R's, right? There's the R project for statistical computing, which is very much a Unix open source project. Mm -hmm. And then there's Revolution Analytics, which now owned by Microsoft. Mm -hmm. Sure. That, that's also R. It, it R, is are also, the same thing? Uh, two, well... The, the answer to that question, because you can tell I'm a consultant, the answer to that question it is both depends. yes and no. <laughs> yes. The answer depends. So it depends how deep down the stack you want to go. Oh, interesting. So the answer is, if you scrape it away enough and you get to the bottom, then yes, it's all R. Right. The, the, the key difference, if you want the kind of elevator pitch to the key difference, the key difference between the two is that R has a problem in that all of the statistical work that it's going to do is going to be done on data in memory. Right. And that is obviously, in this day and age of big data, when people don't properly understand sampling, um, difficult to do. And so Revolution R solves the problem of how are we going to do the R thing on vast amounts of data in my data lake on Azure, for example. Interesting. How about NUML, N-U-M-L, Seth Warris's machine learning toolkit? Yes. It? Um, I have used it f in a couple of um, places. Yeah, it's very yeah. good. It's very good at what it does. I mean, um, it's a great library. Seth's a great guy. He knows his stuff. But as far as I'm aware, there's just him working on it. So yeah. it's only he's, as wide he's as got, the. He's got another guy working on it. He's got another guy yeah, working on it in Australia. That's All right. So in, yeah. Awesome. So so in the past, then 
it's only as wide as the stuff that yeah. Seth has time to do, and nobody's paying to write him full time. No. So there's always been there's always been stuff where you go, well, I can't use it for the whole of this project because at some point I'm going to have to do X, and X isn't in the library yet. Right. Well, sure. yeah. Or you build it yourself. I mean, he's sure. got the six contributors now. Clearly, four of them fixed something they needed. Yes. And and uh, he's a couple of between himself and another fellow. They're they're making more contributions to it. Hey, .NET developers, you spent your career building shiny objects for other people, and now it's time one was built for you. Well, our friends over at Stackify are letting us in on the pre-release of Prefix, a totally free, slick, super profiling sidekick just for .NET developers. We're talking all ASP.NET requests, SQL queries, web service calls, logs, and exceptions real-time, all the time without ever affecting performance. Run it right on your second monitor. They're including Prefix at a web event on February 26th. Just go to bit.ly slash prefixrocks to register for the event and get early access to the application. Prepare to meet your new favorite sidekick. So you've used a lot of tools, and would you say that the Azure machine learning platform is maybe the easiest to use, or what would you say about it in terms of what it has going for it? So the uh, the Azure tools um, for machine learning, so Azure ML, is yeah. both the greatest boon to a data scientist like myself that uh, that's come on the market in, in a long time. And I'm not just saying that because I now work so well for Microsoft. it's so integrated with everything yeah, else. Yeah. I mean, I was saying this before I worked for Microsoft. Right. Um, so it yeah. is both the one of the greatest boons that's come along to data science in many years, and it is at the same time a terrifying thing. Yeah. <laughs> um, so to put it in terms, the, the, the best thing about Azure ML is that you can come along and if your use case is one of the ones that are already codified out of the box, there will be a module available to do the thing that you want. So the canonical example for classification, for example, is the ham and spam for email. You know, here is a bunch of email, classify this into ham and spam. Right. That kind of, that sort of classification, that's all, that's done for you, right? That's straight out of the box. Bring out your data set, clean it up, um, drag in, one or either of the, um, the, the, the prepackaged modules that you want and get a writer at the end to save it to um, Azure SQL, for example, job done. Press the button, runs the model, press another button, publishes it out to an HTML, um, a web endpoint, mm-hmm. an, an HTTP endpoint, you're done, right? Yeah. Literally 15 minutes work. And the worst, most scariest thing about Azure ML is that you can do that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so you right? don't know much and you've gotten something done. You've got some. Like, do you actually know if it's accurately separated and, into Hammond Spam? And that's the problem. You, oh, well, you can tell it's accurately separated. But, but the problem there is, so it's a bit like, you know, so we're all, we're all programmers, both listening and, and in the audience. We've all programmed. The best thing about um, graphical user interfaces and uh, forms designers is that you can drag all the buttons onto the form. And ex- <laughs> it's also the, the most terrible. The worst thing yeah. about them is that you go double click on a button and all of the code in the world, is, you've basically got an application and it's written in the do stuff. So button. you're saying you really don't have to be qualified yeah. in order to use it. And that's yeah, the problem. And it's exactly the same as Azure ML. The trouble with Azure ML, um, and, or, or the trouble, not just with Azure ML, but, but the trouble with any tool that makes it simple for people who don't know data science and statistics to do data science and statistics work is it's not the same as programming. Yeah. Where you go, I don't really know what I'm doing. I'm going to write a bunch of stuff in here and I'm going to press compile and it's going to go, no, what you wrote there was rubbish. Yeah. Right? And if it doesn't work, I can right. just kill it and start again. It, if I exactly. Get, I can crash my computer, I can reboot it, no problem. Exactly. But there is no compile step. There is no check 
in in tools like Azure ML. It's the same. It's exactly the same principle as if you go to Excel, for example, and you set up two columns of completely non-correlated data, and you open up the data part of Excel, and you say, I would like to do a um, regression, a linear regression between these two columns of data. Excel will say, certainly, here it is, you know, the y-intercept, and here is the coefficients of both the of the x um, variable. It's nonsense, because there's no <laughs> linear correlation between this data whatsoever, but it will provide you with these numbers. The numbers are totally meaningless. Well, it's the same with Azure ML doing machine learning. It's like that on steroids. You say, I want to do, you know, this particular statistical analysis with this bunch of data. If that is a meaningless thing to do, Azure ML and tools like it won't say, that's a really stupid thing to do, don't do that, right? It'll go, certainly, here's a bunch of numbers. And you go, yes, I have solved the universe. All right, so here's the next question I have, and I know this is on the mind of everybody. What do I need to know to become qualified? In other words, not just my learning curve, but what type of person, what type of uh, mind is going to be able to grok this best? in the slow, you know, shortest amount of time? How do I know if I'm qualified to become qualified? How, well, great question. How do you know if you're qualified to become qualified? So you need, you need two things to, to start to become a data scientist. You need two things. One, curiosity. And two, the motivation to um, solve that curiosity. So you have to have the curiosity to say, I wonder, you know, if you listen to the television, a politician says, and today, and, you know, and it's so much, we've spent this amount of money, and it's so much better than it was under the previous government because we did this. You go, really? Yeah, if you're the kind of person who goes, true. really? Yeah. Then you, you possibly, you but are the kind of person. But not only that, but you will but you then have to go, exactly. Then you have to go, you haven't, you haven't just got to be the, so first of all, you don't have to be the kind of person that goes, well, okay, that's fine, I accept that. Or two, that's bullshit. I just, out of hand, don't believe that. Yeah. You have to go, really, I wonder if that's true. But then you also have to be that kind of person who says, let's go find let's out. find out. <laughs> right. yeah. Let yeah. me just check that for and you. And not, you know, after yeah. you get halfway through and it's actually hard, you don't say, eh, I didn't want to know Yeah, I didn't want to know anyway. Yeah. If you are that guy, then you are totally qualified to start to become qualified yeah. to do data science. Good. Yeah. Because, of course, it always starts with what is the right question. You know, even when you have paying customers, they ask the wrong question. Sure, sure. It's, it's a fairly tough thing to start with when you're looking at any given organization saying, what do we need to know? Yep. Yeah, they'll uh, ask you questions like, how do I write an app in, you know, Aurelia? Yeah. And that's not the answer. You know, the, the question should be, uh, you know, I want to provide this business value. How do I get there? Sure. Yeah. It's, um, it's the, um, I took a marketing class um, way back um, at, at college years and years ago of which I've forgotten everything mm -hmm. except this one point that, that this guy told me. He said, in marketing, what you've got to remember, right? If a guy comes into your hardware store and he asks for a three-quarter inch drill bit, he doesn't want a three-quarter inch drill bit, right? He wants a three-quarter inch diameter hole in something. Right. Right? <laughs> That's what he wants, right? He and believes. You to, he believes that what he actually wants is yeah. a tungsten-tipped, yeah. yeah. black and decker, yeah. He says, but that's not what he actually wants. What he wants is a hole in something, and, yeah. and that's the difference. You, so you have, to, you have to scrape away at that with yep. the client. It's like, you know, when a client says, well, I want to know, I want to know what products ship the most on the first of every month. And you go, do you? Do you really? Do you really? Do you really? Is yeah. that really what you want to know? Yeah. Why do you want to know that thing? Yeah, right. And usually, usually, if the very first question out of your mouth once you're told is, well, why do you want to know that? Usually the next thing he says 
is the question he really wants the answer yeah. to. <laughs> right. you know, well, I want to know this because I need to be able to yada, yada, yada. And you yeah. go, right. That's what you want to know. Now we yeah. can get down to it. Hey, Richard. Yeah, buddy. Guess what time it is? Oh, I must be that happy time again. Yep. It's time to ask Azure ML the question, which one of my mid-show jokes is the funniest? <laughs> and the answer is, oh, we don't have enough data to answer that question. <laughs> <laughs> Clearly, it's not this one. <laughs> but it will be by the time you edit it. Yeah. <laughs> By the, time, by the time this goes through edit, that will be the funniest <laughs> joke you've funniest. ever told. Oh, my God. Actually, it's time to I give... I think he just did some predictive analytics. <laughs> <laughs> my God, data science jokes, eh? Wow. It's actually time to give away a Telerik DevCraft collection to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. But first, have you ever used a product that was so bad you wondered whether the people who created it had ever used it themselves? Telerik has been building the best UI controls in the world for over a decade now, but more importantly, they've been using them in their own projects. That means they know what it takes to build real-world apps. And Telerik knows what makes developers want to pull their hair out, having shed some of their own. No more silly Northwind demos. Get real UI for real applications. Download Telerik DevCraft today and enjoy the most complete set of user interface components for .NET desktop, mobile, and web development. Try it today at Telerik.com slash DevCraft. All right, buddy. Who's our winner? Today's winner is Henrik Gunderson. Yeah. No golf claps here. No golf claps. This is a full-on... Applause. And Henrik just won the Telerik DevCraft Collection, a big pile of awesome from our sponsors, Telerik. And if you don't know what we're doing here, go to .netrocks.com, click on the big Get Free Stuff button, answer a few questions, and join the .NET Rocks fan club. We have thousands of members all over the world, and every show we give away stuff from our sponsors. And every December we give away a $5,000 technology shopping spree to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. Done it four times. Random. We have done it four times now. No bull****. And we also like to ask our guests, Gary Short, if you had 5,000, five large to spend on uh, technology today, what would you be buying? Oh, wow. That is a great question. Um, HoloLens dev kit. There if I go. could answer the questions, mm, you know, yeah. if I could persuade, I might actually have to, instead of actually paying the money, I might actually have to spend that five grand bribing somebody <laughs> who's already got it just yeah. to give it to me. I think the, co the cornerstone question when I went through it, and, and I did not actually order the thing. I just went, I wanted to see what the questions were. They want to see that you have a Unity 3D app. Yeah. That's uh, what they're after. Yeah, I think that's, that's a major thing for them. Okay, so two grand paying someone to build me that app <laughs> and then three grand to get the dev kit. I like <laughs> that. That is such a good plan. That's the best plan ever. <laughs> now, what can you get for two grand? Yeah, uh, it's, they didn't say a good Unity 3D. No, no, app. you didn't specify <laughs> good. Yeah, sure. right? They did not say that. <laughs> oh, there's data science all over this. Yeah. All right, well, that's awesome. Do, are we pretty much stuck with the idea that we need to use an Azure Data Lake if we're going to do machine learning? Like, what if all your data is on-prem? Nope, you absolutely do not need to use Azure Data Lake. I mean, I mean, even if you're going to use it in the cloud, right. you don't need to use Azure Data Lake. Okay. Um, you can use basically any of the, any of the other Azure storage um, mechanisms Okay. if you're on Azure. But you can literally do, provided you sample your data properly, you can literally do data science um, on your laptop. And you've said this a few times now. Yep. What does it mean to sample data properly? 
So the the canonical example is is a report basically that that's just come out um, over the last couple of days, but by the time the ship's in February, we're well out of date now. Mm -hmm. um, so there's uh, last year we had a general election in the UK. Yeah, there's and a lot of fuss yes, about that. there was a lot of fuss about that, and the polling companies failed miserably yes. to predict who was going to win the election, other than the exit poll. And even the early exit poll didn't get it right. Mm -hmm. And so there was a big review into um, why that was. And basically, the answer was because they did not sample the population correctly, wow. hmm. which means, you know, we have, a, we have a population of about 65 million people in the UK. Mm -hmm. um, you don't ask 65 million people, you ask a thousand people. Right. That Ideally, that thousand people would be made up um, in the right ratios from all the different political parties, right. all the different genders, all the different ethnicities, and all the rest of it. Yeah, but you and don't know what that proportion is. Well, well, you do. You can you, you can look at census data to right. say, well, in the UK we have X of voting age. We have sure. X X number of females, um, um, X number of males, X number of Caucasians, X number of people who self-identify as Afro-Caribbean, all right. of that kind of stuff. Okay. And in an ideal world, you would get that exact same proportion in your um, in your sample data. Okay. Right? So that when you ask, and more than once, so that when you ask that group of people the answers then you can say with some confidence that the answers you get from that group are representative representative of the population as a whole. Sure. Given that those particular measures are relevant to making difference in the data. Sure, I I exactly. And, and that's all down to sampling as well. So you decide what fe features um, are going to are going to actually drive the answer to your question and you work out how that is sampled in the general population mm -hmm. and then you create... Um, one or more um, test groups with that same um, breakdown yeah. of percentage. Yeah. Okay. And if you get that wrong, like they did this time, the answers that that group give you are can be complete nonsense. Mm -hmm. And yeah. it's I the mean, same. The answers they give you, you will presume, are accurate. Oh, but yeah, they're they didn't not lie. reflective of the answer you were looking Correct. for. So yeah, when yeah. you try to project those, so nobody lied. No, right? yeah. when, you, when you went to those people and said, you know, given these policies, who would you vote for? And they said, well, I would vote conservative or labor or whatever. They weren't lying. They genuinely would. The error was that what you did was you projected the answers from the that question. sample group to the general population as a whole. And because the sampling was wrong, you weren't entitled to do that. Right. And the and you can make the same mistake when it's not people. So if you've got if you've got a um, petabytes of data, mm -hmm. and you say, well, I actually want to do some statistical analysis on that, but it has to be on my laptop because I'm using R, and all the data that R needs to analyze has to be held in memory. Right. I'm going to sample that data, put it on my laptop, and do my work. If you do not sample your data correctly, then um, you do not, you, you're not entitled then to project that answer onto the population as a whole. Mm. And the canonical example of that, or the easiest everyday example to that, is average. Right? People say, the average number of times a person does this is such and such. Right? That number is meaningless. It's yeah. utterly meaningless unless they also give you the standard deviation. Right. Because the standard deviation is really the test. So what you're creating there is a model. Right? Mm -hmm. You're going to say, I'm going to use the average, and I'm going to use that as a model for predicting. Um, so let's say we've got a class, right? a class of school children. We give them a test. We get an average mark. If I say, right, I want to use that average as a model to predict what a new person joining this class would likely score in this test, you're only entitled to do that 
if the standard deviation is small compared to the mean. The standard deviation for non-stats people or people who didn't take statistics in college is, is the average distance from the average? Is that what it is? Yeah, yeah, sort kind, of. yeah kind of. That's right. So basically... Yeah. How much um, deviation from that average? Correct, yeah. It, exactly. It's the it's the how close how close are um how close are your observed data points to the to the yeah. average. And yeah. then for the lar- larger the standard deviation, the further away they are. Right. So if you've and got so, if you've got ten data points and they're all fifty, the average is fifty. If you've got ten data points, five of them are zero, five of them are hundred, you still got fifty. Correct. Yeah. So the first one is a low standard deviation, the second one's a high standard deviation. Right. If you've got a high standard deviation compared to the mean, you are not then entitled to use the average as a model, that model that is a bad average. And yet, the number of times that you see average, quoted average number is this, without the standard deviation, mm-hmm. it's utterly meaningless. Hmm. Because it doesn't tell you whether you can use that number as a predictor of what will happen in the future. Right, yeah. Right? That just really, that's just a report. Right. That's what happened in the past. So that's the sampling problem. What about the cleaning problem? This is, a pro- this is something that we talked about in our keynote, mm-hmm. which is... Uh, statisticians and data scientists spend a lot of time, an awful lot of time, just cleaning the, the data and taking out the, the crap. What does that usually look like? So it comes, it, it looks like a bunch of different things. Um, so l- let's start with the example you gave, the, the cleaning out the crap, right? So, I mean, there's the, there's the infamous um, one on the daily WTF mm-hmm. where you've got this, where the, where the code was written, you know, true, false, yellow. Yeah, that's, that's just a, it's a, I mean, that's a, that is just a story that sticks in my mind. Yeah. So that's the kind, that's the kind of, that one would fit into the class of you, you're saying cleaning out the crap. You yeah. know, when you say, well, I've got a binary field here, it's got to be true or false. And you go true, false, true, false. And somebody's got yellow in there because it's a, it's a data point that's crept into the wrong place. Yeah. So that's just crap that needs to be removed. Yeah. Um, so, and the, another example is it's just missing data. Mm-hmm. You know, I want it to be true or false. It has to be one or the other. So, yeah. so gender is a, is a great example. Now, I, I know lots of people yeah. like to argue that gender is a continuum, but in terms right. of pure data and law and all the rest of it, it's a binary thing. Yeah. It's you're male or you're female. Well, you must be one or the other, but if it's not recorded, we don't know. Right. Yeah. It's, it's not crap. It's Mis- just not there. And, and missing is not incorrect. It's Correct. just, it's just missing. missing. So now I do not know. So now I might have a whole bunch of opinions assigned to this person, but I don't know the gender of this person. And if gender is important in the thing that I'm trying to, to determine, you can remove it. Then, well, there's a whole bunch of things that you can then do. Mm-hmm. Um, in that particular case that I've highlighted, where you've got a whole bunch of um, opinions and you're trying to assign them to a gender the safest thing to do is to remove it. Mm-hmm. But if 75% of your data has that missing data point, yeah. then you need to do something else. That's a lot yeah. of removing. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's, so that's another example, just missing data. Mm. And then there's stuff where it's, it's correct, but you can't use it statistically. So let's think of a good example of that. Um, so if you're doing regression, for example, it has to be a number, okay? Right. But let's say um, I say to you, what's your favorite day of the week? All right. You're going to say Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, or Sunday. Right. Okay. Choose one. All right. Mm-hmm. And you'll write down. You know, so the data will be recorded. Um, Carl Franklin's favorite day is Mondays. Well, um, um, <laughs> and you will write that down, Monday. Right. But that is not a number. Yeah. Right. So the data is not incorrect. 
it's yeah. not missing. It's in the wrong right. format. It's not crap. It's just in the wrong format. So I yeah. now then have to take these seven possibilities and code them one through seven. Yeah. Right. So that's cleaning work that has to be done. So there's a whole bunch of stuff that needs to be done from out and out, this data is crap, right up to you've recorded the correct information, but now in order to do this, a statistical analysis on it, I have to recode it in a different way just yeah. to make the algorithms work. Right. I guess the question is, why would I want to do a regression on that? Like, what are the mechanisms you want to use to discover things? Like, how do you turn the question into a set of actions in the machine learning tools? You hire Gary. D sure. Um, <laughs> that, always, <laughs> that, that's, that always works. So again, it, it depends what kind of, it depends what kind of question you've got, mm -hmm. or even if you have a question. So I guess it's easier to, um, tell you what kind of machine learning there are, what types of machine learning. Sure. There are supervised machine learning, there's unsupervised machine learning, right. and there's regression. Yeah. Okay? okay. We'll leave regression to, to one side because it's, it's basically just saying how it, we can take all of these data points and can we squash them onto a line that we can kind of see sort of, sort of thing. So we'll leave that to the, to the side. Of the other two, supervised and unsupervised kind of breaks down to, um, I have I have a question. I want you to do a thing, right? So either classification or clustering. Mm -hmm. um, I want I want to do one of those two things. I'll explain what those are in a second. Um, supervised data, uh, supervised machine learning is when you say I want you to do this thing. Classification. Um, we'll use the canonical example again. Mm -hmm. Ham and spam. Right. I want you to classify all of the emails that I've got into ham and spam. And I'm going to supervise that learning by giving you a bunch of labeled data. So here is a directory full of emails that I view as being spam. Right. Yeah. Oh, right. And here's a directory of emails that I view as being ham that I want to read. Right. Please look at the lexical content of these things. Yeah. Okay. And learn what's ham and what's spam. Then when I give it a new thing, it is basically just a probability. Yeah. Um, it looks at that and says, well, every time this word is used, you know, three times out of four, it's spam. Therefore, there's a 75% possibility, probability this is spam. Therefore, mm -hmm. I'm going to classify it as mm -hmm. such. Okay. Mm -hmm. So that's, um, that is supervised learning. Unsupervised learning, not surprisingly, is the opposite of that, where you go, I want you to do that classification thing mm -hmm. between ham and spam. And by the way, I've got no idea. I don't have any no data. I've got no hints to give you. Mm -hmm. Right. I want you to run through a process. Um, and I will tell you which ones you get right and which ones you get wrong, and you will learn from my my marking, and that'll be so. Neural and networks that's unsupervised. That's unsupervised. So, right. so a neural network really is is the a kind of good example of that, of where where you give it um, where you give it a bunch of data with no hints whatsoever, and the kind of error is okay. then fed back, and it learns then. From so that. my confusion here is you give it data, but you don't give it hints. It's not labeled, so we, call words, that, we will call that labeled data. Yeah, yeah. So yes. the supervised would be, this is already sorted. This is data that we know Correct. what it is. Unsupervised is, we don't know what this data is, but it's data. It's just a bunch of data. Right. So, yeah, kind of. So supervised data, in supervised learning, you give it labeled data. Got okay. It. So you give it something to train on. Yes. With unsupervised learning, you don't give it anything to train on whatsoever. Yeah. And then in the future, you give a new thing that's never seen before and you say, please classify this. Yeah. Um, and obviously with um, supervised learning, it has what it's learned. It's what it's learned in the past from your labeled data. So I think of a computer vision maybe as a, as a supervised learning thing where you, you train it on, you know, this is a, this is a mouse or whatever. You take 
40,000 pictures of ma- the computer mouse and you say, you know, these are all mouse. Yeah, right. from lots of now, absolutely. Here's a new picture. Is that a mouse or is not? Yes, yeah. absolutely. So you teach exactly. So that would be supervised learning. Right. You give it a whole bunch of labeled data, you know, which yeah. is photographs of com- uh, computer mouse from various different angles of yeah. doing various different things. And you That's say what the these Amazon are phone almost- is doing, right? The Fire Phone. Yeah. Yeah. You take a picture of something and it brings up products. Yep. Yeah. It's um. It's what um that the website that Microsoft came up with with the um. How old am I? Right. Yeah. That's what that's doing. It's got, it's had lots of labeled, um, lots of labeled data so that it knows. And now actually it's using the consumers now to supervise its ongoing learning. Wow. Because you can say, here's a picture of me. How old am I? Yeah. And it goes, Hey, you're 35. And you go, no, I'm not. You are wrong. And he goes, well, how old are you then? Yeah. And he goes, well, right. I'm 45. And goes, okay, that's what a 45-year-old guy looks yeah, like. Yeah. Right. And if you go, you are correct, he goes, all right, so there's another yeah, one. Yeah. So you're actually now, the consumer is helping to train that thing. So there are then questions that require the opposite, that require the unsupervised learning. What would some of those questions or problems be? Um, so unsupervised learning, um, Let's think of a good example of unsupervised learning. Um, so things like um, linguistic, uh, computational linguistics. Hmm. Um, you, you can do both with computational linguistics, but particularly voice recognition. Mm-hmm. Voice recognition mm-hmm. is very hard to do with labeled data because um, you can... The language is built with... Um, a linguistic structure. Yeah. And you can supervise learning on a linguistic structure. But what you can't really do supervised learning on is out. So David Christensen, for example, who has a stronger Glaswegian accent than I have, because I'm from the east coast of Scotland, he's from the west coast of Scotland. We could say the same sentence, yeah. right? And if that sentence was written down, right? If yeah. we did computational linguistics on the written word, yeah. that'd be no problem. But we would sound different. Yeah. And that is extremely difficult to actually label because you would need somebody speaking from all the different regions and you need to label up and all the rest of it. And so that is a that is one of the okay. canonical examples of where unsupervised machine learning really Ask helps. Ask me what I had for lunch. What did you have for lunch? Fush and chops. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was, that, was that pretty good? It's, that was, that was, <laughs> that was pretty good, actually. Yeah. All right. So, so, so the neural network, you said, is sort of a... Really, what good you can for use it for sure. You can like use it for handwriting both, recognition. Really good. For example, yeah, yeah, exactly. Another good example. Yeah, although to be fair, handwriting recognition is usually um, supervised learning. It's so usually it's a, a bunch samples. of people writing down numbers. Same thing. You know, write down the letter A. You write down the letter A. You know, yeah. you get a million people to write down okay. the letter A, and you go right. Those are all. And it's but different you can do that with voices too, right? Like if you got enough samples. Of, of different voices, you should be able to equalize all of that. Yeah, but you take, too, the, the trouble is accent and the too way you data. speak. Yeah, the, the, it, too much diversity. You could, take, you could take two children who were born in the same city, went to the same school mm-hmm. and get them to speak. Their mothers, anybody could listen to the tapes of those two voices and not necessarily be able to identify the children but go, that's not the same child. Right. right. Their yeah. mothers would be able to go, yes, that one's mine and that one's yours. Right. Uh, somebody who's never met the children before would go, those are two different children. So the, the way you speak, it's not just a function of where you were brought up, how your parents talk. It's a, it's a, it's a function of the structure of your skeletal muscular sure. system and all the rest of it. It's yeah. very, very difficult to have labeled data accurately. Interesting. 
I've also looked at uh, data mining processes and so forth where they're finding relationships between data, typically business data, that you didn't know about. Sure. So that's clustering. Okay. Um, so I, I spoke um, earlier about there's there's the, the two machine learning um, the things. There's clustering and there's classification. So what you're talking about there is clustering, mm -hmm. where you go, I know nothing about this data machine right. learning algorithm, mm -hmm. right? I don't want you to classify something because I don't know what the bins are mm -hmm. that I want you to classify them into. I want you to have a look at this data and I want you to, so for example, an algorithm that you might use is um, k-means, right? Where k is the number of bins that you want to split things into. So you give it a bunch of data, you use the um, k-means algorithm and you say, I want this clustered into say four bins off the top of your head. Mm -hmm. Right. And the and the algorithm will look through the data and will say, okay, I've given you four bins and everything in this bin is similar to each other. Mm. And everything in this bin is also similar to each other, mm. but the things in this bin are different from the things in that bin. Mm. And then it's up to you to say, do I actually care? Why are these things on what degree, on what feature or what collection of features are the things in this bin similar? Mm. Do I care? Yes. Okay. So now then maybe I can start to, to look at that. Um, because I didn't even know that these things were all similar around the same area before until we did this. So clustering is a great way to to take a whole bunch of data that you know absolutely nothing about and say, okay, tell me something about this. And then you can actually start to explore that and you can actually say, well, all right, so here's a business relationship that I didn't even realize existed. Interesting. Right? And I might be able to exploit that. I mean, I mean, a business relationship is a tough thing to determine. I mean, this also gets to back to what data you're looking at. If I'm just looking at sales data, I have a bunch of, say, it's coming out of relational database. So I have all these tables. I mean, how does machine learning aware of the relationship between the tables or can it determine that himself? Or do I have to plan that for it? It doesn't necessarily need to know the relationship between the tables or anything like that. Mm -hmm. it, it can just say, you know, these things. So if, if for example, it decides that um, these things are similar because they are related, that, right. is, that is the thing that I've, I've binned these things on because this because of the relationship that they have, it it can it can spot that if it's prominent in the data. Right, like I'm I'm coming at this backwards, like right. discovering something like all of this type of bicycle were bought in the same neighborhood, right? So that is taking sales data combined with the customer information and finding a cluster of you know a distinctive kind of sale. Sure. So you have to be you have to be really careful with this, mm -hmm. right? And, and and actually, I would be extremely wary of people who say, I have done this thing and I have found this relationship. Right. Okay. And the canonical example of that is beers and diapers. Yep. The Everybody classic, knows it. The classic story. beers and diapers um, story. So for those of you who don't know, um, guy from university did a bunch of studies that found um, using what we call um, uh, frequent item set matching, which basically says if you if you look at a shopping basket and you pick one item, in this case diapers, what is most frequently bought when diapers are bought? Or and you look at that and you say, well, it's beer. And the answer to that question was beer and diapers. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and then the trouble was that became a self fulfilling prophecy because what happened was people read that and go, oh. People coming to stores buy beers and diapers to get together. So stores started putting beers and diapers together. And because they were next to each other, people bought them together. Right. And it became a self-fulfilling yeah. prophecy. It's reinforcing. Yeah. So later, 
when they went back to redo that study, they found that it wasn't true most of the time. And the trouble with clustering, the trouble with things like that is a, a freak of mathematics, yeah. which is that random behavior has clusters. Right. right. And you see a lot of it in epidemiology. You speak to any epidemiologist and they will tell you finding the cause of a cancer cluster is really difficult. You know, right. so people will say, I think there's something in the water because look, there's a cluster of cancers. Or right. I think that the argon gas on these electric pylons are giving people underneath it cancers because look, there is a cancer cluster here. There's the a trouble correlation, is, not a causation. Correct. Yeah. The trouble is, Cancer is, to a certain extent, random, and mm -hmm. random behavior has clustering. And so you would expect there to be cancer clusters any, anyway. And it's the same with the, with the beer and diapers thing. You know, that was just random behavior which caused a cluster there. And you have to be able to recognize that just because you've seen it, you, just because you've seen a cluster, doesn't mean to say that that cluster is still not random. Right, got it. So... And how you do that, you can't just look at it and go, well, beers no. and diapers, nobody would buy those two things together. That must right. be random behavior. The way you do it is that you do the analysis and then you go, okay, well, let's experiment with that. Let's, let's try, let's go with a hypothesis that they do actually um, buy these things together. Mm -hmm. Now let's design a bunch of experiments that we can do to actually see if that's genuine or if it's just a random cluster. Then you would design an experiment where you do better and further studies. Mm -hmm. But I think what happened was this guy just published this thing. And to, and to be fair to him, he wasn't making a big deal out of it. I think he just went, hey, this is kind of interesting. Right. And of course, retailers jumped on that immediately. Yeah, sure. you know. It yeah. suddenly became truth. And then it became but, truth. I mean, would, wouldn't he, right? You've got to validate hypotheses in multiple ways. Go get another data set. See if the beard and the diapers sure. correlate again. Right. E exactly. Go, go do, re repeat the experiment or yeah. design, design a bunch of experiments to say, well, assuming this is true. So where your hypothesis then be becomes mm. beer and diapers are sold together. Mm. That's your hypothesis. Let's design a bunch of experiments to actually test the hypothesis. Mm -hmm. Why don't we f uh, sell diaper flavored beer? That would be kind of... I've, I no. have drunk diaper flavored no. beer. <laughs> I'm sure. I think I had some at and, lunch. Um, yeah, I did some of that. <laughs> that. With my fashion chops. Fashion chops. <laughs> ah. Gary, what's next for you? What's in your inbox? Um, more, more of the same. Um, I'm a, Data solution architect right now for Microsoft. I work in a financial services, what Microsoft called pod. So right. I work with a bunch of financial services customers. Um, How would a person um, get to you then? Do they have to go through Microsoft? Do they have to be part of an existing group or something? So to, to work with me professionally through Microsoft, yeah, you, 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 they tend to be big customers. Right. What, what Microsoft call hypo customers, which I was surprised to find out didn't mean they were diabetic, right? <laughs> Turned out, I thought, I, I don't think I'm qualified to deal with all these diabetic customers that Microsoft have. That's Turns out, hypo just means, um, because Microsoft loves its, yeah. um, its abbreviations, hypo yeah. just means high potential. So okay. the kind of customers that I work with will be high potential customers that Microsoft are trying to get through proof of concepts and or taking um, ideas that they've already got and, and making them live. So okay. professionally, you if you want to... Um, to engage with me, you'd probably be a Microsoft customer working with Microsoft anyway. If you just want to ask me a question or hang out or buy me a beer or talk about data science, then you can get me, you know, um, on, the on my on, on the Twitters, yeah, on the interwebs, nice. which are tubes, apparently. Yeah, they are. Gary <laughs> <laughs> Short, ladies and gentlemen. Let's give him a big round of applause. Thanks very much. And we'll see you next time on
Dotnet Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Pwop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and of course in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got a